0: Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the Restoration. My name is Stephen Pinecker, your host, and we're joined for our next segment with Chris Thomas, author of the book "The Pentecostal Reads the Book of Mormon." There will be a link in the description to this fascinating book. So we uh, have had our conversation about the contents of the book and how it relates to uh, that, you know, some of the theology that's in the book. Um, what brought you into how you're interested in all this and i think now the point is is that we need to discuss the um what's in the title which is the pentecostalism in the book of mormon and i think that's a real fascinating thing and you look at it through a pentecostal lens <clears throat> so you're able to pick up things that maybe uh, maybe a regular protestant going through it wouldn't pick up <clears throat> and so you made some interesting observations about it from a Pentecostal worldview. Let's talk about that.
1: Sure. Um, well, it's it's focused on the fact that I am a Pentecostal who's reading the Book of Mormon, right? And I think you, you know, you you are getting at it when you say that I'm reading with different eyes than, say, an evangelical's reading. Um, Uh, a a non-Pentecostal, non-charismatic, not only has my approach been affected by the way I come at biblical texts, but also uh, my own formation means that I'm going to pick up on things that are distinctive uh, in the Pentecostal tradition. And as I began to, to read the book one of the th- and, and the scholarship around Book of Mormon, one of the things that struck me was how little had been done on the role of the spirit in the Book of Mormon. Now, there are a couple of things that got written, but I was kind of surprised that certain dots did not get connected. For example, in the Book of Mormon, the the text talks about the baptism of fire and spirit, and the accompanying phenomenon of the baptism of fire and spirit is uh, tongue speech. Now this is this is written in 1830, so regardless of your view of authorship or whatever, we're looking at something that emerges in 1829, 1830 in terms of uh, being written and then being printed. That is 70 years before Parham um, makes the, the deduction that spirit baptism, uh, that the, the evidence of spirit baptism is speaking in tongues. Right? Parham is Seymour's teacher, who's uh, the leader of the Azusa Street Revival And so, you know, 70 years before Parham, you basically get statements, explicit statements about the connection between baptism of fire and spirit and speaking in tongues. Now, to my amazement, nobody said anything about that that I read. Many LDS folk that I talked with and that I've read after are kind of surprised when they find that tongue speech is actually in the Book of Mormon. And um, you know, it's as a, a Pentecostal, it was it was a really interesting discovery on my part. Not that you know others hadn't seen it, but that you had that explicit connection. Part of what's interesting in some of the reception history to me is how quickly that connection seems to have dropped out um, and the and of course part of the difference is i mean it's similar to oneness pentecostalism but but is that this the baptism of spirit of fire and spirit in the book of mormon seems to be kind of conversion initiation uh, rather than a subsequent spirit empowerment. But there you have it in the book. You also obviously will have things about spiritual gifts, which, and the language in the book is pretty explicit, that churches that do not have spiritual gift manifestations are not true churches, right? They're not the true church. And so you have a number of things that Pentecostals would pick up on, not to mention the phenomenon of prophecy. Uh, you, You have healing, and you have words about healing, but you don't have Much of an equivalent with those who practice healing uh, in the book, you don't have anything quite like the James Five text about healing, etc. So it was it was quite you know natural to me to pick up on those dimensions. In fact, I I recall that one of the things you know there's this there's this uh, interview I saw with George Harrison. Uh, of the Beatles thing. And he was talking about when he first picked up an Indian sitar and he said, it just felt familiar to me. Well, when I started rummaging around in early Mormon history and Book of Mormon, there were things I recognized. There were things that felt kind of familiar in that regard. And so I think a Pentecostal would pick up on those where other readers might not pick up on those. And it's, and and the resulting conversations about all that with with people in the restoration has been quite an interesting quite an interesting um, uh, phenomenon. There are those within the the, the Utah uh, LDS Church who seem to be uh, well. Let me put it this way: there are folk for whom belief in gifts is sort of a dogmatic reality. But there's a, a distance between that belief and the practice. Um, and um, there are other places in the Restoration, however, that have whose practice has been much more in keeping with how the Book of Mormon describes such a uh, person that you're familiar with and a, a group you're familiar with, the Church of Jesus Christ uh, in Monongahela, Pennsylvania, uh, in which tongue speech, prophetic utterance, et cetera, continues. Well, they seem to have been more influenced by that dimension of the Book of Mormon than some of the other restoration groups, I've tended to wonder if that has been because the Church of Jesus Christ has the only part of the Smith Corpus that they regard as scripture is the Book of Mormon. And I've wondered if the more of the Smith Corpus you buy into, whether you're less likely to preserve those kind of phenomena than... um, if you just have the Book of Mormon. In part, it goes back to our earlier conversation because it it is very similar to, to the New Testament in that regard. Uh, and also it would be sort of a double, almost a double witness, if you will, from scripture and Book of Mormon, if, if you're in a tradition for whom the, the book functions as scripture.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's, you know, so I did the, the review of William Bickerton. Um, forgotten prophet of the restoration <clears throat> and was struck by the amount of uh, tongue speech. And it is a very, he was a very Pentecostal man and it was a very Pentecostal and still is a very Pentecostal church. That's the key thing. And <clears throat> that's a really fascinating history, but also I've been interacting with community of Christ and I also, also some independent restoration people as well. <clears throat> and I brought up and I was in a group discussion with um, about 75 community of Christ people and I just brought up um, that I was so surprised in the Joseph Smith III biography that there is tongue speech in 1859, right before the 1860 formation of the RLDS. And so I asked them, and I had Lack McKay and a couple other prominent people from the Community of Christ on, on this, uh, community, this call, and I asked them, I said, I had no idea that there was tongue speech going on in the RLDS. And what's the history here? Where does, what happened? And so they were telling me that, yes, there was a little bit of that at the beginning. And then somebody brought up how like, well, there was a, there were some prominent women in the early 20th century that kind of kept it going and then it kind of died out. But then as they're talking, I'm getting messages from people. Well, brother, so-and-so 20 years ago, he spoke in tongues in this conference. And so and I had like two or three instances of that in the last 20, 30 years of tongue, uh, Pentecostal uh, tongue speech in the now what is called the community of Christ. And I thought, well, this is interesting. So there's a vestige there, even when the second largest branch. And then, of course, the third largest branch of the restoration is the Church of Jesus Christ. And then you have various other groups. And and there are, to varying degrees, you will find that there is tongue speech in some of these other groups as well. Um, And I know that there have been instances of tongue speech in the 20th century in the LDS Church as well through individual members. So it's still there on some level. more pronounced in some branches than others. And I just find that endlessly fascinating.
1: Indeed, indeed.
0: It's a lot that we can learn from that. Um, so that, you know, the book itself, like you said, it's we, we, we mentioned how Protestant of a book it is. And now, of course, it's also a very Pentecostal book. And as you're weaving yourself and trying to understand this book, and you recognize so much of, you know, you were in familiar territory, like you said, you you, you picked up the instrument, and you knew how to play it right away, right? Um, what was that like for you to have that realization that there's something going on here that you weren't expecting? And not only with the document itself, the Book of Mormon, but also the restoration itself?
1: Well, that's a good question. Uh, I... I was surprised. I was surprised by, I think, the connection between tongue speech and the uh, baptism of fire and spirit. And that it was rather consistent in that regard. Of course, there were a lot of groups that had some kind of charismatic phenomenon. In the 19th century, though, tongue speech seems to have been more exceptional than other sorts of phenomenon. Uh, the healing movement being one of the things that that is, you know, emerges in the 19th century. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was. It it made me wonder what happened to tongue speech and and prof- prophetic utterance. Pretty early on, as I would read more, Joseph kind of um, shuts down certain rival uh, or what, what is interpreted as rival prophetic sort of figures from others who use seer stones to others who spoke in tongues. In fact, he had apparently had had warned the church about tongue speech. And when he meets Brigham Young, Brigham Young starts speaking in tongues. And everybody was expecting Smith to um, correct him, but he didn't. He seemed to uh, affirm him. And of course, tongue speech, according to John Turner's magnificent Brigham Young biography, um, is reflected in various times in his life. So it, it, it created a lot of questions for me in terms of what happens to it um, in, in the history of the tradition. And it's, I don't want to say that it goes underground, but the charismatic phenomenon eventually don't seem to have much of a place in public worship at all, which seems to stand in some tension with the Book of Mormon, which tends to identify the true church with those phenomena. But again, that's for for the LDS tradition, that seems to be one of those things where the continuing revelation brings sort of a different emphasis and view to those sorts of things.
0: Yeah, you know, and, and I've actually been interacting with, with um, LDS and they were telling me like, and we don't have to really get into this, but there are observations like the Missionary Training Center, the MTC, that's, uh, that's their manifestation of tongues, that they're training people, you know, different languages. And I, I can kind of see that, but it's, it's not, I, I, somebody brought that up to me in a Facebook group, and I just told them, I said, well, I, do, I believe that tongues is for all and not those, just those trained in the MTC Center, that it's available to all. Um, and I got a lot of thumbs up for that, but, um, so, you know,
1: it's, I, I, was at a, I was at a, if I could just say, I was at a, um, when I went out to the Maxwell Institute the first time they'd done this little reception and allowed me to invite different people at the university that I wanted to, to talk with at that point. And so I was inviting, you know, I was giving them different names. It was odd to me on, on the one hand. That, that some of these folks didn't seem to know one another, but they were all kind of working on Book of Mormon sort of topics, and so we started talking about this, this whole issue, and I said, you know, I remember when I went to my first sacrament meeting that as a Pentecostal, fullness of the gifts, I'm strapped in, ready to go, and uh, one of the people at the at the reception said, and, and you were really bored, weren't you? And I said, well, I said, it was different than I thought. Uh, and then we started talking about tongue speech and uh, the missionary training imagery was brought up. Uh, but of course we all sort of concurred that wasn't exactly how the Book of Mormon talks about it, but that's how it gets demythologized. And, um, I said, I suppose the one thing we can all agree on is that the other one is wrong about tongue speech, right? <laughs> because the Pentecostals, they can't be doing the real thing if you're LDS and vice versa. And so, um, you know, it's, to me, it's a real interesting thing. I've got a person doing a PhD with me just now who is trying to trace out the, the reception history of the Book of Mormon when it comes to tongue speech, and uh, I think that that is a I think that is a really interesting topic um, to and and I would have to say the conversations that I've had with people it's almost split between those who, who kind of wax wistful about the loss of the charismata, if you could put it that way. And those who have moved to a position of well, that's not really the charismata. We don't need those sorts of things now. Almost a, kind of almost ironically a, a cessationist view, um, and that's I've, I've quite clearly just a random sort of uh, sampling of engagement that I've had. In fact, I had one scholar say to me about it all, Well, you know how some people are spiritual but not religious? And I said, Yeah. He said, Well, I'm religious but not spiritual. I got and, it. And so, anyway, yeah. Uh, well, uh, that, that, all of that to me has been interesting. One of the tributaries, of course, is Bickerton. And I remember when I read Daniel Stone's uh, wonderful biography that I I counted up how many references there was to glossolalia and it was like 30 something. And when I brought that up to Daniel, he said, Oh, he said, well, tell you the truth. My editor made me cut out a lot of them. I said, there were more references. He said, yeah, a lot more, which says something about the ethos of the, um, the, the church of Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah. 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 And you know, I, I just, that, I want to read a, a, a little brief piece out of your book here, because okay. I think this kind of this is a fascinating quote. Uh, this is from uh, page 360 in your book, and it's, um, however false Mormon leadership may be, this is what a Pentecostal is writing about their interactions. Uh, Maybe doubtless God may have a people even among them. The writer met with such one a one in Utah in 1872, <clears throat> an elderly woman, She was once a zealous Methodist and in her blind sincerity told me that to her, the Mormon scene might seem like the old fashioned Methodists. She still seemed to be quite saintly, serious, a real child of God. In every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is is accepted with him. And the Holy Spirit will take up his abode in such a heart, whatever be his or her religious associations. And when say old fashioned Methodist, that means basically Pentecostal, right, on some level, you know, a, 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 um, and so to me, I look at this, is this is where the tension is, right, right, the tension between where we're at, you and I, on some level, <laughs> you know, where here a, a Pentecostal brother makes an observation, and about another person who essentially he would equate as being very similar in their worldview.
1: Yeah, well, what what that what that, but the particular uh, text you're, you're referring to uh, is early in the uh, a publication called The Bridegroom's Messenger, which was sort of the East Southeastern equivalent to the Azusa Street, the Apostolic Faith publication at Azusa Street. And it's in 1908, which is um, really early in terms of Pentecostal periodical literature. And the fact that in the very first one, you, you, you have this kind of denunciation of Mormons, and yet at the same time, you get that text quoted about that God may have among this people a people, was much more generous than the things I'd heard, ever heard in the tradition about the LDS tradition, and perhaps vice versa, to, to be honest about it. And so it, it always kind of stuck with me that um, that you did have, from the beginning of the tradition, uh, this acknowledgment that God could be at work amongst another people, uh, which is quite quite extraordinary in that regard. I think. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just fascinating stuff to me. And um, it's, it's just that it's just this wonderful part of our journey that we're on together and we get to encounter these little nuggets that we unexpectedly are running into um, and just really enlighten so much of what we're trying to do. Um, so couple things I wanted to just go over with you regarding the publication and that regards the reception history you brought that up just a little bit ago Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is art and the book of Mormon Mm. Um, I brought that up in my book review and first of all I'm just going to show here this is uh, David Hiram Smith's painting this is all one painting okay of uh lehi's uh lehi's vision they're holding on to the iron rod here and there's the great and spacious building um and what you discovered was that this is probably the oldest extant um, painting of a book of mormon story now i will tell you i was talking to Lackland McKay about it with the Community of Christ, and that's they own it. It's in their, um, I guess, an indefinite loan from the Smith family. And he at first said, I didn't really realize that. He said, but you know, now that you mentioned the dates, he said, yeah, that sounds about right. So I just think that's an interesting story. What you want to? Um,
1: yeah, uh, I, I had been on one of my trips to Nauvoo. It may have been, it may have been the first one, I found myself at the Community of Christ Visitor Center, uh, and Locke was there. And we, we were chatting. And this piece, it's uh, lots of greens color-wise. And it is, uh, it's a really lovely, um, lovely piece that hangs there on loan, permanent loan from the Smith family. And I was trying to figure out when it was written or uh, drawn and interestingly enough, the date is on the the canvas, the back cover of the canvas. And with with David Hiram, uh, his kind of unfortunate demise, uh, where he he gets institutionalized and spends the last Kind of decades of his life, uh, in in a what was at one time called an insane asylum, um, he enters in mid seventies. This I think has a date of seventy two, so we're we're right in that frame. There is other art by Mormons. Uh, there are other pieces of art by Mormons that predate this I'm told but not anything on the Book of Mormon I mean I think this was the first one which was which astounded me and in fact the community of Christ was very gracious Locke helped me gain permission to use the volume or the the piece we tried for a good while to figure out a way to do it on the cover because it was it was such a you know to do the first piece and but it's it's a pretty large piece, and we couldn't quite get the the colors to work uh, on the piece. And so, uh, but yeah, I'm very I'm very appreciative to Locke and the community of Christ and the Smith family for allowing me to have that in. And what I discovered was, very few people knew this was among or the first Book of Mormon extant piece of art that's round. Uh, and so, yeah, I was quite, as they would say in, in in England, I was quite chuffed by that. I, I really uh, was was quite happy that that it fell out that way. And in the art section, part of what I was wanting to do was to highlight a few things that were not all that commonly known. And in this case, just really got lucky you know I'm not that good I mean it's just some things just sort of fall in your lap and I happen to be there and Locke is such a delightful person uh that it all just kind of all the cosmic tumblers had clicked into place you might say
0: that's right well you know like I always say sometimes you need another set of eyes to look at something right and that's that's kind of what
1: it is amazing it is amazing to me that that's that's the case
0: and and so so what Let's talk about what painting did make the cover and your artist that you fell in love with. Yeah
1: yes Minerva Minerva Teichert. Minerva Tykert is a very interesting um, uh, LDS artist and she was trained at university level. If I recall she may have gone to the University of Chicago. Um, and, and she did a lot of art. She did art um, a lot of Western scenes as well. It wasn't all religious art with her. And she, um, she would barter her non-Book of Mormon art with the university for, for people to have scholarships at the university. And so she's, she's just a remarkable uh, figure. A couple of books out on her that are really helpful. Her Book of Mormon Art, uh, the originals for a long time hung in the Joseph Smith building where many of the religious studies faculty are housed and uh, religious education faculty and where a number of the classes meet. And um, when they figured out what they had, they decided that they would put all of her art in the Museum of Art on the BYU campus. And they did replicas, which are still in the Joseph Smith uh, building. One of the things I really like about her is uh, her, her art is really lovely, very colorful, and she includes women in a lot of scenes that the text implies they're part of but may or may not make clear that they're part of. So for example, there's this one scene where the 2000 stripling warriors uh, are going off to do battle. And in the background, uh, she has depicted their mo- their mothers who are um, kind of weeping as they, as they leave. Now, as I recall, the text doesn't actually say that, but the text certainly implies that. And um, I'd had the opportunity to see her original work uh, at the Museum of Art. I asked to see in the examining room, three or four pieces by her to try to figure out exactly what we would do on the cover. And uh, very, very uh, hospitable reception um, and that was quite, that was quite a, a, you know, an exhilarating, uh, time to spend there, to be received in the way I was and to just have as much time as I needed, uh, in these examining rooms to have a look and then, <laughs> excuse me. And then <coughs> on one of my trips, uh, they happened to have all her stuff displayed and they have so much stuff that they rotate the displays. And uh, so I was able to kind of take them all in uh, at at one time. Yeah, I really love the Tykert stuff.
0: So that leads me to my guy. That would be this guy here, Arnold Freeberg. Right. And I got Jesus coming down and I got a war scene here with Samuel the Lamanite because he's trying to convert the bad Nephites at this time in the storyline and uh so i was asked uh, recently um actually on my first interview uh with rick bennett um about what interested me and i mentioned how the paintings of the book of mormon that i encountered at a marriott hotel as a young child i was truly fascinated by them and so i i, I don't want to say i was disappointed but i was surprised that you didn't have mention or talk about him now i know you say well because he's well known i get that but to me like as an outsider like okay if anybody like an evangelical or pentecostal were to encounter the book of mormon they would it would be the paintings that would strike them and i thought you know that would be a next good place that you could you know talk about so let's just talk about what 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 made you decide not to include arnold in your um in your book
1: yeah, well, that's a great question. And, and uh, you will, would not be the first person that I've been disappointed in my life. So you're absolved, Steve, if I, or I'm absolved, maybe a self-absolution. Um, well, uh, you know, it seemed to me that, that Freiburg was more uh, almost uh, in the superhero vein. Uh, you see these depictions of Mormon and Moroni and they're real buff and they got their armor and such. Uh, and it was real kind of manly, uh, which I think the Book of Mormon already is very male-centered. Um, and so, and, and as you say, everybody does him, right? I mean, he's got all that connection, you know, um, with, with movie projects. And, and obviously, he's a major figure. When I when I looked at something like uh, Paul Gutiard's um, uh, book on the Book of Mormon, uh, Paul is a, a dean up at Indiana University, and he wrote uh, a volume in the uh, Princeton biography of books on the Book of Mormon. And Paul's a great guy. I've had, had some good, good uh, chats with Paul. Uh, you know, he would point to, to Freiberg and, and others do as well. I was a little more interested in early, um, kind of, if, if it's not early, a bit more off the beaten path. Um, uh, Tykert I don't consider off the beaten path, but it was great to have a female artist. Uh, and I really love her stuff to, to boot. Uh, David Hiram, just compelling story, earliest piece. The other piece I include is from a guy uh, named Reuben Kirkham, who apparently had done these big kind of travel-rama deals where he had all these canvases in a circle and would tell the Book of Mormon story that way. Uh, And uh, unfortunately, there's only one of those that, that we even have a picture of. Uh, and, and I was able to include it here. Uh, it's, a fo- it's on page 334. It's a photograph of a panel from his panorama uh, about 1884. It may be the second earliest piece. Uh, and there's a, there's a whole book on him Uh, by I think the 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 author editor is a woman named Donna Poulton and she helped me get access to this piece to be able to to include it so I had those two early ones and then Minerva and of course you could do you know you could you could do tons of things on the art Uh, so that's part of what was going on there And, and of course I'm I was trying to give uh a taste of these categories i mean each of these categories you could probably do a whole book on um and so <clears throat> so so there there it is so so hopefully you'll forgive me but uh we'll still be friends if you don't
0: steve <laughs> okay that's that's just that's that I'll, I'll have to work on that i think i can i think i can forgive you dude i, th- I think i can uh-huh. so it's all good I, I, uh, I, people need to realize that the aesthetic of the Ten Commandments movie that Cecil B. DeMille gave us was essentially Arnold Freeberg. Uh, so, if you want to think of what does those paintings in the Book of Mormon represent, imagine a Cecil B. DeMille production of the Book of Mormon, which actually he was even thinking of making, but the paintings evoke, you know, like the parting of the Red Sea and all these oh, just yeah. dramatic. Yeah scenes
1: of course i had an old testament colleague that once said the the greatest obstacle to old testament study was cecil b demille
0: yes yes <laughs> that's right that's right but
1: we could have only hoped for such a such a movie on the book of mormon you're right about that and those are all great points
0: <laughs> so interesting stuff well christopher as um we close out this segment um I think we I think this was a good stopping off point to transition to our next uh, segment. Um, I really want to thank you again. Uh, Please like and subscribe. Uh, There's a link in the description of this fantastic book. I heartily recommend this. I gave it a five out of five stars um, in my review. Um, So we're going to move on to our next segment. Thank you very much. Please like and subscribe. And thank you for watching Mormon Book Reviews.